0: Good morning. So, as Caleb said, my name is Matthew. Your uh, challenge today is to try to work out where my accent comes from. So, um, if, you, if you can get it right, that would be quite, quite impressive. And so, um, yeah, it's great to be with you this morning. I've known uh, Caleb and Sarah for, for many times, traveled together with um, Church of Places to, to Mexico and Colombia, and uh, really appreciate the support and the prayers and the encouragement of True Life for the work that we do Around the world. So, I'm going to share a little bit about the ministry Church in Our Places, and then we'll pray, open the word, and see what the Lord has for us today. So, hopefully, uh, the slides will work. All right. So, what is Church in Our Places? So, when we think about some of the hardest places in the world. You know, you can make a case that everywhere is hard, right? So, everywhere there's challenges, but there are particular parts of every city, every country, where life is just really difficult. Close to 3 billion people in the world live on, on, in deep poverty. In fact, nearly half of the world lives on less than $2.50 a day. Almost. You think about what is it like to, to live in a community, to do ministry in a community, to, to plant churches in a community of, of deep poverty, $2 a day. One billion children worldwide are living in poverty, are struggling to, to grow up, to, to do the simple things that, that for us just comes naturally. So there are places in the world where life is just particularly hard, and in these places, you'll find all of these challenges. So in the hard places, you often find poor access to decent housing, poor access to quality health care, crime tends to be high, unemployment tends to be prevalent. Then all the social issues that are concentrated in areas of deep poverty, addictions, abuse, lower li- uh, literacy, fatherlessness, poor mental health. Now, that is true in the poorest part of Denver, as it is in the slums of Nairobi. These these elements tend to be present in, all the, in poor places, no matter where in the world you are. This is what we call the hard places. So how do you plant churches in areas of deep poverty? How do you raise up leaders? How do you do evangelism, discipleship? How do you do pastoral care in ministry? And one thing that we recognize is that most networks and denominations and church planting conferences and the training that's out there isn't really speaking about ministry in these contexts and isn't really equipping people from These contexts. And that's why we started Church in Hard Places. We want to see churches thrive and pastors persevere in the hard places. It's going to look different. It's going to take more effort to do that work. And we uh, launched this work and we have a focus on kind of three areas as we come alongside those who are from hard places with a desire to reach them or those going to the hard places. We want to care well for their families, we want to provide counsel and care to pastors and his wife to help them persevere. That's our goal, is perseverance. So quickly, men in in these places, they quit, they struggle. And so we want to come alongside them to help them persevere in the hard places. We want to care for them in their soul. Pray for them. Uh, Let them know that even though their life is a struggle and their ministry is a struggle, they still matter. Uh, They have a voice. Many times, men who are pastoring in these places, they go to events and conferences, and they feel overlooked, unheard, and they feel as if they don't belong. And so we want to come alongside them and say, no, you do matter. And the work you're doing is critical. we want to train them as well. And so we've developed a two-year apprenticeship program to equip men who are doing ministry amongst the poor uh, to to learn not just deep uh, uh, theological convictions, what is is the gospel, what is the church, what is the uh, attributes of God, to have a deep understanding of the gospel, but also some competencies. How do you do evangelism well in an area of high level of addiction and mental health? How do you do discipleship well when people are living in in a permanent state of crisis? How do you raise up leaders well? How do you plant churches? And so we developed a two-year apprenticeship that is non-residential, that's really important. Because often guys who are from poor communities, if they leave, they won't go back. And so we wanted to train them where they're at. We developed a training cohort where they learn together with their peers who are from their own communities or communities just like theirs. So they're not thinking, oh, nobody else gets where I'm from. Now, we, we, we train in context, uh, led by a regional practitioner, somebody from that community. So it's not Western facing, it's not a white guy coming into Nairobi and training guys there. My job is to resource the trainers who are equipping uh, each of these cohorts. And so, right now, so we call it the apprenticeship program. The apprenticeship, we use that language deliberately because many people in poor communities, they often learn um, not from going to college and, and getting a degree, they learn by seeing and doing. Right, that's the apprenticeship model. It's the New Testament model of, of learning a trade, learning ministry. And so that's why we uh, use our, the language of Church on Place as apprenticeship. Currently, we have 300 leaders uh, around the world that are being trained for ministry. Um, we have the training available in six languages English, Portuguese, Nepalese, Spanish, French, Albanian. Lord willing, hoping to introduce Russian and Arabic and to uh, reach into the uh, Russian speaking, Arabic speaking world in North Africa and the Middle East, and, uh, and also a lot of the Southeast Asian. Um, contexts as well, particularly in India. We have cohorts all around the world, in the US, Canada, um, particularly those working in the city or in remote rural communities where uh, all these social issues tend to be present. And then all the way down, Europe, West Africa, East Africa, Southern Africa, right down to Nepal, Philippines, and the Albanian part of Europe, which is the poorest region of Western Europe. And so we train men like uh, these guys, like David O'Kello. So I want to thank church and our place for training me. I've learned many of the things related to church planting, church membership, evangelism, discipleship. I've grown as a pastor through this training. For many of these men, this is the only training they get. So they can't afford just to go to Bible college or to go um, to to seminary. It's the only training they get. And most of them, when they start with us, they're believing a false gospel. Um, And their view of both the Bible and the gospel tends to be false. That's because that's the only thing they've ever heard. So there's There's a difference between a heretic and someone believing heresy. A heretic has an intent behind what they're teaching. Someone believing heresy, they just believe what they know. You know, Often from American radio stations and TV channels that are being beamed in uh, to their communities. And so we come alongside them and introduce them to the true gospel and the true hope that comes through Christ. And it's led by cohort leaders like Alfonso, who is our cohort leader in Cape Town, who leads our Southern African cohort. And this picture over here is the uh, intensive training that we just did in uh, Guatemala, Guatemala City, with our cohort there. And so this is what Church on Place is. We're, we're trying to catalyze healthy church planting in some of the poorest, hardest-to-reach places on earth. And so, you know, when you think about missions and reaching the unreached around the world, there's, there's a few ways you can do it, right? You can raise up a missionary. You can raise $100,000. You can send them to other side of the world. And, and that's good, and that's good. We need missionaries who so are going to go and, and do uh, train up church planters where they're at. Or you can... Get alongside one church in Mexico City or in Guatemala City and pay them 3 4 or $500 a month and support that one church. What Church in Our Places is doing is we're inviting you to invest in a whole region and to create an ongoing pipeline of healthy indigenous church planters to that region. And so we're encouraging and we're praying that churches just like yours will adopt uh, a region of the world, one of our cohorts, and really invest. It takes about $10,000 a year per cohort. So invest. In that cohort, over two years, and then every year, a new group of guys will come through the training. Get to know our cohort leader. View him as your missionary on the ground. And maybe even come, come and help us on, do some of the intensive trainings that we do in the country as well. And this church in our place is really encouraged by your support and the, uh, the way that you guys have, have prayed with us, even from the beginning of the work we're doing, and we'd love to have you continue to support and pray for this work as well. I'm going to pray for us. Pray for this work, and then pray uh, as we open up the Bible and study this word together. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you that as we've sung this morning, that, that you are a God who, who loves us, that you sent your son to die, such is the expression of your deep, deep love for us. And we know that, but Lord, there are people all around the world who are living in, in such uh, tragic lifestyles often afflicted by trauma, reeling from all the consequences, perhaps addictions or abuse that they've lived through. And Lord, they need to know of that love as well. They need to know of that same hope that comes from the God who sent his son to die for them. And Lord, we believe that you have have your people all around the world in some of the hardest places, some of the least reached places on earth. And we believe that Jesus is worthy of worship even there. And so I pray that you would raise up many men and women to come and worship you and many church planters to plant healthy churches and pastors to, to, to persevere and to thrive in the ministry setting where they're at. And I pray you raise up churches like this to come alongside them so they know that they do matter. And that even though their life is difficult and hard, well, we can learn much from them as well about what it means to persevere with hope in the gospel of Jesus. And I pray for our time together this morning now. As we open your word, I ask, Father, your spirit would come that you would reveal yourself to us again. You would make us know of the deep, incredible, rich love that you have for us. As revealed to us through your son, Christ Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. We're going to uh, look at Isaiah. And so, as we do, so go to Isaiah chapter 7, if you've got your Bibles. And so, first thing we're going to teach you today is you say... Isaiah, that's the way you pronounce it, right? Same way as you say Jeremiah or Nehemiah or Hezekiah, Isaiah, right? I'm getting it. I'm just being consistent. I don't know what you guys are um, doing when you mess up the pronunciation of that word, right? So, um, so first is a little bit of English, English lesson there. So Isaiah, right? Chapter 7, we're going to read first 1 to first 14. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Amalia, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it when the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz, and the hearts of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, and You shall, and you and Sherejasim, your son, at the end of the conduit, the upper pool of the highway of the washer's field, and say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands, at the fierce anger of Rezim and Syria and the sons of Amalia, because Syria and Ephraim and the son of Amalia has devised evil against you saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it. Let us conquer it for ourselves. Set the son of Tabeal as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand. It shall not come to pass, for the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezim. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of if you're not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Again, the Lord said, spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David. Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Amen. Oh come, O come, Emmanuel. It's a hymn that's been sung in the lead up to Christmas for close to a thousand years. that 1,200 years ago, that hymn, was first written. What is it about this song, this particular hymn, this Christmas carol that's allowed it to, to last the test of time? So many other Christmas songs can arise and fall. You think about other songs that we are familiar with this time of year. Maybe there's some, some that you used to sing that we don't sing anymore, but there are certainly some songs that have survived at least recent history. All I Want for Christmas is beginning to look a lot like Christmas. Mary, did you know? Christmas Shoes? I pray that we forget those songs. There are some that we may be timeless. Others that have had their time and they need to go. But this song, this ancient hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, it's been sung by choirs and in chapels, in homes, from the Middle Ages to the Medieval Ages, from the era of the Reformation through the Renaissance through the so-called Enlightenment, the Industrial Revolution, from empires and war zones right up to our present day. Not even Mariah Carey can beat that. (laughs) It is a song that feels as rich as when it was first sung, meaningful as when it was first chanted millennia ago. It's a song that expresses hope and promise. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. That mourns in lowly exile here until the Son of God appears. O come, thou dayspring from on high, and cause thy light on earth to rise. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night, and death's dark shadow put to flight. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. O come, Emmanuel. God with us. That's the cry of Christmas. That's the hope of this season. That's the promise of Advent. Whether you're in the the poorest part of Eastern Africa or the wealthiest suburbs in Denver, our hope is a common hope. Oh come, O come, Emmanuel. And we desperately need him. That's the message of Christmas. That's the hope that he calls us to share. And in Isaiah chapter 7, we read a, a familiar verse that is set in a particularly unfamiliar context. It's the story of a king. King Ahaz, a wicked and godless king of Judah. He was living in fear of an incoming invasion. There was an alliance between his two enemies, the northern kingdom Israel and Syria. And they were surrounding the southern kingdom Judah that the king Ahaz ruled over. And they're threatening to invade and to take the throne of Ahaz and to put a puppet king in his place. But God comes to this godless king. And he comes with a message. Have no fear, your God is near. Have no fear, your God is near. And I wonder if that's the, the message that we all need, particularly this Christmas season. How often do we forget the nearness of God? How often do we wrestle with our own insecurities, our fears? How quickly we lose sight of the hope of Emmanuel, God with us. It's the promise that we sing about. So I want us to look this morning at these 14 verses of chapter 7 and look at it in two parts. first part is the, the promise of Emmanuel, and second is the presence of Emmanuel. King Ahaz is terrified. Israel, this once mighty kingdom of King David, has since been divided into a northern kingdom called Israel and a southern kingdom called Judah. It's fallen a long way from the, the great glorious days of King David. The nations that surround Judah were looking for their opportunity to come and invade and to take over this southern kingdom. It's a kingdom divided, it's a kingdom surrounded. It's led by a godless king. Ahaz himself had given up on God long ago. He was not a man of worship. Instead, he was seeking to rule according to his own strength, according to his own power. And you get a sense of the fear in the land. The text says, The heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind, trembling with fear. They knew they could not defend themselves against this mighty alliance that was surrounding them. And it was to this godless, faithless, terrified king that God sends a messenger, his prophet. Verse 3, And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and your son, at the end of the conduit, and say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, do not let your heart be faint, Because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. This king, he wasn't looking for a word from God. He wasn't seeking after God. He wasn't praying, God, give me a sign, give me a vision, give me a sense of your presence. But God came to him. God makes the first move towards him, this faithless, wicked king. God moves towards him. And God comes to give him a reality check. He says, your enemies are nothing more than two smoldering stumps. John Calvin said, one would think that they are endued with so great power that they could burn and destroy the whole world. To put down the excess of terror, the Lord declares that what we imagine to be a burning and perpetual burning is but a slight smoke and of a short duration. When Ahaz lay awake at night, terrified, all he could see was from his own human perspective the challenges that he was facing. And the problems to him seemed completely overwhelming. To him, he felt powerless. The enemy could not be defeated. But Ahaz failed to see God in his power, God in his strength. Ahaz stood trembling in fear before his problems, but God God came to him to remind him, your problems may look big and scary, but they're nothing more than smoldering stumps that can be puffed out by a holy God. The truth is, for most of us, the more we look at our problems, the bigger our problems become in our minds. But God says the more we look to Him, the smaller our problems can appear to us. I wonder what problems... That you are facing right now? What are the struggles? What are the things that make you shake with terror, paralyzed with fear? Maybe it's financial stress or relationship strife. Maybe it's a physical difficulty or a sickness with which you've been diagnosed. Maybe it's overwhelming grief from the loss of someone you greatly love. Maybe it's the threat of financial pain. And these very real and difficult challenges They press in against us. They can make us feel suffocated, leave us awake at night. They rob us of our joy and our hope. But from God's perspective, every problem that you are facing right now is nothing more than a smoldering stump before Him. Your problems might overwhelm you, but if you are in Christ, they cannot destroy you. And that's the message that God comes to Ahaz with. God sent his messenger to correct his misplaced vision. I got a car dropped me off here this morning, and I noticed in the the side mirror of the car it said, objects may appear closer than they are, or objects may appear further than they are. And it's reminded to us that God himself is actually closer than we might think he is. He is near to us, even in the midst of our trials and challenges. Now, God's messenger doesn't come to Ahaz and and tells him that their circumstances are actually better than they are. In fact, if you read it, God's messenger, Isaiah, actually recounts to him all the problems that he's facing. He doesn't come and remove the problems. No, Isaiah says, this alliance has plotted evil against Judah. They're seeking to evade, to weaken the city walls, to overthrow the king, to install a puppet king in your place. So I thinking, he's got to be thinking, well, thanks for that message. That was helpful. I really needed that. The challenges you're facing, they are real. The pain you're experiencing, it is a struggle. God doesn't dismiss the challenge. He doesn't cheapen the pain. But he does remind us that he is stronger. Look at what he says. If you are not firm in faith you will not be firm at all. If you are not firm in faith in the living God, you will not be firm at all. Often we don't need our circumstances to change, our situation just to go away, our life to get a little bit easier. God comes to renew our faith, to so give us the faith to persevere, to remain strong, to remain hopeful and confident in Him. The real problem that Ahaz faced wasn't the enemy that surrounded him. His true problem was the lack of faith within him. If you do not stand firm in your understanding of who God is and what he can do, you won't stand at all. We don't need to escape our problems. What we need more than anything is the faith to stand. When our faith increases, our courage increases. And Isaiah invites Ahaz to ask for a sign. Now this seems odd. Surely it's not good to to test God, to ask for a sign. But what is God doing here? He wants to bring Ahaz to a place of saving faith. He's saying, look, you don't believe? You don't believe in this living God? Ask for a sign. Anything, he says. As deep as Sheol, as as the depth of the sea, or something high as the heavens. Ask for anything for God to reveal himself to you, to make himself known to you. One commentator said, this sign was intended to be of world-shaking importance. Something that all the peoples of the earth for all time would know about. A sign that would strengthen the faith of millions. But Ahaz refuses to ask for a sign. He offers false piety. It is wrong to put God to the test. But the reality was Ahaz didn't refuse a sign out of piety he refused to sign because he didn't want to believe in a God. He didn't want to believe there is a God. He wanted nothing to do with God. The reason why he refuses to ask for a sign is because he doesn't want God at all. And we're surrounded in this city, in this city right here, by men and women with the same heart of King Ahaz. Maybe you were once in that place yourself. Perhaps you're still there. Perhaps you would prefer to silence God, to ignore Him, to want nothing to do with Him, to push Him away. It doesn't matter how much evidence there is to confirm that God exists. His Word is true. It's still not enough. Evidence cannot create faith. It just confirms it. But without faith, all the evidence we can point to, it's unwelcome. There are people all around us singing the same Christmas songs we sing. But they want nothing to do with the God about which those songs are sung. Hebrews 11 verse 6 says, And without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. This Christmas season, God reveals Himself again to us, reminding us through even the lighting of an Advent candle that he has come to us. If only we would believe in him, trust him, hope in his promise. That's the promise of Emmanuel. But then we see the presence of Emmanuel. Even though Ahaz doesn't ask for a sign, God's going to give one anyway. That the sign he offers is not simply a sign for this weak and wicked king. It will be a sign for the whole world to see. From every generation. For every generation. Look at verse 13. And he said, Hear then, O house of David. Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. You see, the sign is first directed to the house of David. Ahaz needs to be reminded of who he was and where he came from. He came from the tribe of Judah. He came from the bloodline of King David. He came. From the very people of God. The God who has preserved his nation and raised up kings and sons of kings. And from whom? From the tribe of Judah and the bloodline of King David will come a greater king. A king who will reign forevermore. An everlasting king. Ahaz need to be reminded. You come from the line of David. And from your descendants will come an everlasting kingdom which can never be destroyed. Micah 5 verse 2 says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth. For me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. We need to be reminded of who we are and where we've come from. Who? You once were separated from a holy God in war against him, wanting nothing to do with him. But this God came to you. This God gave you eyes to see that he is indeed the very living God, that he has created you in his image to worship him. And this God has revealed himself to you, that he loves you. And he sent his son to die for you in your place, and his grace is upon you. And you are now a part of his kingdom, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, led by a great king of kings. When we stand, shaking with fear, God reminds us of who we are, O house of David. And what is the sign? What is the sign that God gives to us? First, Isaiah says, Behold... Behold, this word behold, every time Isaiah uses this word behold, it's to announce something, announce something truly wonderful, something unimaginable, spectacular that's going to take place. But it's also interesting that Isaiah only uses this word behold to announce something that's going to happen in the future. Look, look and see, look and see what our God will do. What is this wonderful thing? That will happen in the future and come to this son of David. Come from the very descendants of King Ahaz. A virgin will miraculously conceive a child. And a son will be born. That's the sign. The sign is the very virgin birth. It's the sign of God's promising, promises being fulfilled. A truly miraculous event that could only be explained by the supernatural work of God in our midst. You see, it was necessary for a Savior to be born. For Him to be crowned King of Kings, Lord of Lords. It was necessary for a Savior to take on our human flesh. To live amongst us, to come forth from a woman's womb. To feel as we feel. To touch as we touch. To experience pain as we experience pain, if this savior is going to represent us, if this savior is going to die in our place, he must be like us. He must take on humanity, human flesh. He must be born of a woman. But to be born of a man, then he would bear the same sin nature of man. He would inherit Adam's sin nature he'd be born condemned, were he to be born of a man. So to be our savior, he needs to be born of a woman, fully human, and yet not of a man, not under condemnation. In Luke 1, verse 26, it says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, from the household of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favoured one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at this saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favour with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb And bear his son. You shall call his name Jesus. For he will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? The angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child will be born, and he shall be called holy, the Son of God. Behold, a virgin shall conceive of a child. This is the promise of God to us. The very presence of Emmanuel. Mary, she couldn't deny it with every flutter of those baby kicks in her womb. She knew it to be true. She knew that the only explanation is that this baby is the fulfillment of God's promise to her and to her people. Many years after Ahaz had passed away, God came to this same godless kingdom, this same People of God, and he ruled by another godless king, a king by the name of Herod. And God came and made Himself known to them in a most extraordinary way. But there was another wicked king, a graceless, faithless king, who wanted nothing to do with this God. King Herod did not want to believe in the word of God. He sought to silence him, even to kill the very son of promise. In this little town of Bethlehem, a a child would be born, but he was a child of God, and he could not be killed or destroyed until the Lord, our God, chose the day upon which he would die. He came from the tribe of Judah, the bloodline of King David, a descendant of King Ahaz. Consider the words, The virgin shall conceive and bear his son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. God is with us. No one else could be given that name. No one else could be given the name Emmanuel. Only Jesus. For he alone is God in the flesh. He alone is God amongst us. Born of a virgin. Come down from heaven. He alone is the great and promised king, born of a virgin. Another commentator put it this way. Christ, who in eternity rested marvelous f- upon the father's bosom, and in time rested fatherless upon a woman's bosom, clasping the ancient of days who would become the infant of days, What a deep descent from the heights of glory to the depths of shame, from the wonders of heaven to the wickedness of the earth, from the throne of the tree, from the throne to the tree, from worship to wrath, from the coronation to the curse. In Bethlehem, humility and glory in their extremes were joined because we cannot ascend to him. He descends to us. God has given us a sign. The sign that God gives changes the whole course of human history. God is with us. No matter the enemies that we face or the struggles that weigh us down, God is with us. And not only is He with us, but for those who come to worship this Son of God, Jesus Christ, as our God, God is for us, not against us. He loves us, He's shown His grace and his mercy to us. How much more do we need to come each Advent to be reminded of this sign, the very nearness of God? How much do we need to be reminded that all true and lasting deliverance from hate and wickedness and evil and war and sickness and sin, and from the very judgment of God himself? Because of our rebellion against him, But because a child was born, conceived in the womb of a virgin, and his name is Emmanuel, God with us, our enemies are nothing but a smoldering stump before us. That's the message that we preach in the hard places. That's the hope that we hold fast to. That's the promise of every Christmas season. That's the message that we proclaim to our families that gather with us this time of year, to every person we send a Christmas greeting to, to every time we sing a familiar Christmas song. He is near to us. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And isn't it extraordinary that this sign from heaven is still seen today. 2,000 years after this very son of God was born, God is still in the business of making himself known to people who want nothing to do with him. It's been 2,000 years since God showed up in a manger in Bethlehem. But still, to this day, and remarkably all around the world, there are people singing, Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. If you do not believe that Jesus came as God in the flesh, that he is himself God, if you do not believe that Jesus is the Son of God who's come to save us from our enemies and from our sins, to give us everlasting life, then I'm afraid you're still like King Ahaz, troubling, shaking with fear, ignoring God's word, pushing away his sign. Only by faith will you stand. But if you've seen the sign, only by faith you will stand. If you know Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, knowing that Emmanuel has come and he will come again. God is near to us. He's closer than you think. J.C. Rawl said, Emmanuel promises to be with us daily, to pardon and to forgive us, with us daily to sanctify and strengthen us, with us daily to defend and keep us, with us daily to lead and guide us with us in sorrow, with us in joy, with us in sickness, with us in health, with us in life, with us in death, with us in time, with us for eternity. We long for the presence of God, but He's nearer than we know Him to be. He was with us in Bethlehem. He was with us in Jerusalem. He was with us on the very cross of Calvary. He was with us in the tomb. He was with us when he broke forth from the grave. He was with us when he ascended into the very heaven. And he's with us still. He's with us here. He'll be with us forevermore. This is the presence of our God. O come, our great high priest, and intercede. Thy sacrifice, our only plea. The judgment we no longer fear. Thy precious blood has brought us near. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel, has banished every fear of hell. O come, thou King of nations, bring an end to all our suffering. Bid every pain and sorrow cease and reign now our Prince of Peace. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel, shall come again with us to dwell. You are a Christian this morning, the very sign to us of the nearness of God is the bread that we eat, and it's the cup that we drink. It's a reminder to us each week when we do this, that He's come to us, He's made Himself known to us, and He's near to us. Every time we do this, it's a reminder, He is Emmanuel, God with us. So if you're a Christian, I invite you to, to, as we pray and take the Lord's, and, and sing, we take the Lord's Supper together. If you are a believer and you're not taking the cup and the bread, there's some at the back, bring it back to your seats, but I'm going to pray, just prepare us to, to come and take the Lord's Supper, and as you do, do so in your own way, in your own time, but remember, this is His sign to us. Behold, the Son is given, born of a virgin, conceived by the Holy Spirit. His name is Emmanuel, God with us. Let's pray. Oh Lord, you know, you know the depths of each one of our hearts. You know the moments, the times when we tremble and fear, so the, ins- the insecurities, the anxieties, the, the things that we wrestle with. You know the wickedness of our hearts, the, the way we've failed you and often strayed from you, the Times have sought to silence you and to push you away. And yet, Father, you've descended to us. You've drawn near to us. So we say thank you, Jesus. Thank you that you are our God and you are near to us this morning. So as we take this bread and eat of it, drink from this cup and drink of it, Lord, reveal to us again today by the power of your Holy Spirit. Behold, I am near to you. In the name of Jesus, our great Lord, we pray. Amen.